Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin. I take a probiotic. And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. It's hard to keep up with the memos, interviews, and leaks coming out of Washington, D.C. Today, we take a painstaking look at what we do and don't know about the memo and the Mueller investigation. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. So today we are going to cover some of the more um, pressing news of the day, including the impending government shutdown, part de, um, as well as our becoming weekly Me Too moment. We'll compliment the other side. And then in the main section of the show today, we are going to talk about the Mueller investigation, the memo, and we're going to do a little bit of sort of a mini primer on the laws affecting the situation and the situation itself. And then, as always, at the end of the show, we'll talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. There are two things relevant to the economy that we wanted to discuss briefly today. The first is that Thursday is the deadline for Congress to do something to fund the government, lest we have another government shutdown. But every analyst seems to think that a shutdown is unlikely, although it also sounds like it's unlikely that we will actually have like a budget. We're probably looking at another continuing resolution. 
Yeah, everything I was listening to this morning was talking about the Democrats lost a lot of their negotiating power last time. Um, the, the consensus seems to be that the last government shutdown was bad for the Democratic Party. So um, I'm not sure how far they're going to want to push this. But I think the best case scenario is that we agree that the only thing we can agree on is that we can't agree. And so we needed to extend the deadline, which is so silly. But last time, Mitch McConnell made a promise to the Senate Democrats that he would bring immigration up for debate had they not reached a DACA deal by Thursday, which I think is highly unlikely, um, although there are several bipartisan proposals on the table. Um, it does seem to me that the continuing resolutions are starting to not just make the Democrats mad, but several of the sort of deficit hawks on the conservative flank of the Republican Party. And hey, listen, I'm with you guys. This is ridiculous. And I hope that just throwing more defense spending at them in an effort to placate that side of the party doesn't work, especially since I don't know if you saw this, Beth, but there was um, interesting reporting that there was a release of the of an audit of a Department of Defense um, initiative in which they lost like eight hundred million dollars. They don't know where it is. Not exactly great timing when they're arguing in the Defense Department, Republicans in the Senate and House of Representatives and the president himself that we should just keep pouring more and more money into the Defense Department. So I think that I think that will definitely play into the debate and it should be interesting to see what happens. The other aspect that of the kind of financial realm that we wanted to discuss was that the president spent a healthy portion of time during the State of the Union address congratulating himself on how well the economy is doing. And there have been a number of pieces since then on the conservative side. Yes, yes, this is President Trump's economy. Isn't it fantastic? On the left saying Thanks, Obama, for this great economy that we have, or the economy isn't so great. And one of our listeners said on Twitter that she would like to hear a nuanced take on the economy. I would love at some point to have an economist on to really deep dive into this. For today, what I've been thinking about, Sarah, is that I'm not sure we know how to measure the economy anymore. When you read both the left and right perspectives on what the economy is doing, the metrics all tell different stories. And a lot of the metrics feel dated to me. Like, I'm not sure what the employment numbers mean anymore because the economy is shifting so rapidly. So my perspective is that for for all of the last few administrations, there is both credit and blame for economic performance. And I've said a million times, I think the president is always a tiny piece of what the overall economy is doing. But I'm just not sure that it's completely fair to give the Trump administration all the credit for the the positive indicators in the economy or to give the president no credit for the positive indicators in the economy, because I think it's much more of a mixed bag than that. I'm pretty prepared to give him no credit for the positive indicators in the economy, but I will try to um, take some deep breaths and realize that's probably not the most reasonable position. But it is as I've argued in the past on this podcast, frustrating to feel like as a Democrat, Democrats come in in terrible financial situations, leave in great financial situations, and then it becomes the Republican predecessor who's just really turned the economy around when I don't really feel like that's what's happening. I do totally agree that the way we talk about the economy in general feels dated and not really responsive to the changing nature of our time or the changing nature of the economy itself. We've talked in the past on this podcast that our 
expectation of constant growth and particularly our expectation of the rate of constant growth in our economy is unrealistic, arguably ahistorical. There's a really great Freakonomics episode that I will share in the show notes that talks about like for most of human history, 1% of growth was fantastic. 2% you're just winning. And the fact that we base everything, including the kicking the can on this budget and the way we fund the government on expectations of 4% growth seems really crazy to me. So yeah, I think that the way we talk about it and the way we make it all about the president or um, really even all about the government decisions to begin with. I mean, people make decisions in business for a lot of reasons, and they're not all representative of regulations or taxes. Well, it's all short-term thinking, too. The economic indicators are always about a snapshot in time. So I would say that the economy was flourishing during the Clinton years during that time period. But I think some of what happened during that time period had long-term negative effects on the economy. You look at housing. I'm not blaming the Clintons personally for the housing struggle, but there were policies effectuated by the administration and by Congress that didn't serve us well in the long term. They served us very well in the short term. I think about some of what the George W. Bush administration did to stop the bleeding with TARP. I think there were short-term positive effects and some long-term not-so-positive effects. Same thing with the auto bailout under President Obama. Short-term gains, I would question the long-term wisdom of propping up the auto industry in the United States. And I think with President Trump, there are some short-term bounces being seen from the way this administration is cutting away at regulations. I think that's a very bad strategy in the long term on some of those regulations. So I don't know. In some ways, I think talking about the economy is just a PR strategy, but I would love to talk to someone who really studies these issues and and have a more nuanced discussion about it. I will say that what I've, I'm fascinated by economists. I'm particularly fascinated by economics podcasts. And what I've learned the most from listening to economics podcasts is that there isn't a lot of agreement among economists about what this means or um, that this is for sure works or this doesn't work. Like if you listen to any fair conversation of raising the minimum wage, which is a, a, you know, sort of golden goose of the Democratic Party, like there's not a lot of agreement on what that does. And we need to be honest with ourselves that if I think that particularly what we want to do on the liberal side of things is like we will bring in an expert. They will tell us the answers that what we, we that's what we will do. That is clearly the right thing to do in this sort of um idolatry of the intelligentsia. And I don't think that that's always the answer either. I don't think that there is a good, easy answer with the economy. And you're going to find two economists that feel differently. And I think you see that um, not only in the dated way we talk about the economy, but in the intense desire to simplify the economy. Well, so much of this gets back to, I mean, not for the two of us to sound like a broken record, but it gets back to what do you value? Mm -hmm. If you're measuring the economy based on the stock market performance, fine. And yes, the stock market does have indirect effects on many more Americans than are directly invested in the stock market. But that surely isn't the totality of what we care about with respect to our economy and and neither are employment and wage numbers i mean there all these pieces really get to what kind of growth are we looking for who matters in this conversation uh what do we care about in terms of long-term sustainability for our country both with respect to the environment and the debt so it's a big puzzle 
I realized while we were writing our book that I used the phrase, that's one piece of a big puzzle way too often. So I'm trying to not edit myself every time I think it. But I really do think that's true about the economy. That's funny. Okay, moving on to our Me Too moment. There was a piece that you shared on social media this weekend, Sarah, in the New York Times about Uma Thurman that I thought could precipitate a very necessary, healthy, difficult turning point in the Me Too conversation. That's interesting. Uh, Before I kick off, I want to hear what you have to say about that. Well, so Uma Thurman shared her experience with Harvey Weinstein, which was as disturbing as many of the accounts of encounters with Harvey Weinstein has been. And I think that it's fair to say that she was assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. I wonder whether there will be criminal charges against Harvey Weinstein with respect to this specific incident. In addition, though, she shared a story about Quentin Tarantino. And she shared about how Tarantino was aware of the Weinstein encounter that she had had. She shared about how she felt that her relationship with him was impacted by Harvey Weinstein. And then she told a story about Tarantino pressuring her to do her own stunt driving in an unsafe car in unsafe conditions in Mexico that left her with lifelong knee and neck injuries. And what I thought was so important about that story was that it showed that sexual harassment and abuse doesn't have to have anything to do with the act of intercourse to be painful and devastating and to have long-lasting consequences. To me, this says Me Too is not just about being raped, assaulted, or hit on, but it is about the the powerful positions that men often occupy and the way they use those positions to devalue women's preferences, women's bodies, and women's work. Mm. I think that's definitely, you know, the, the reporting on her experiences with Weinstein and Quentin Tarantino are so problematic. Unfortunately, I think the the bigger takeaway has come from the way the story was reported to begin with, which this profile of Uma Thurman was not a first-person narrative as the stories of uh, Lupita and Salma Hayek were. It was a it was a section in the opinion section. It read sort of like a celebrity profile. It was written by Maureen Dowd, who is hugely problematic in her own right. Um, you know, talking about how she's drinking wine and her lanky frame. One of my f- absolute favorite writers, Anne Helen Peterson, who studies celebrity culture, wrote a really good piece about, um, entitled Uma Deserve Better about the, about the way the piece was written. And she talks about like in celebrity profiles, obviously you want to, you, you do things like that to add color, but that's not what this is. And it did not need, color and that it was very hard to the way because of the way in which the piece was written, which was very ambiguous to really even come to a conclusion about what happened to her, except for that she feels exploited and abused by both Weinstein and um, Quentin Tarantino. That talks about her memory ends. She never explicitly says that Harvey Weinstein attacked her. Um, she uses phrase like the, the 
the Quentin of it all. We're not really sure what that means. Like, it's just the way it was written was just very confusing. And, you know, Anne Helen Peterson makes the case that, like, well, it wasn't that she should be forced to detail this, but if this is going to be a reporter reporting this, then they need to dig deeper. She says, don't misinterpret this. When there are discrepancies in a subject story, that's when a reporter should push farther, dig deeper, keep reporting. Good reporters don't ignore the inconvenient or contradictory parts of a subject's energy. They dig deeper. That's not what seems to be happening in this Thurman story. Rather, doubt veers into the part of the narrative that Thurman can't or won't disclose, allows the ambiguity to remain in a way that's at once titillating and open to personal interpretation. Two things reporting on sexual assault should never do. And I think that's, I don't, you know, I'm sad that she was clearly traumatized and that the story became the story. But isn't that reflective of me too, generally, right? That we just don't know how to deal with this. We are really struggling as a culture with how to talk about this, with how to report on this, with how to deal with it. How much, how many, how much due process do people need to, for women to share their stories? Should we always believe women? Um, should we push women to talk when they're traumatized? Like, I think that, that this story, because it had been building for a long time, she, uh, was sort of seething with rage on a red carpet and said, I've learned not to talk when I'm angry. She posted an Instagram. She, she built anticipation for this story. And then the way it was reported was so ambiguous and sort of weird that sadly, I think it was both a moment missed, but also a moment truly reflective of the way we don't really still know how to talk about me too. I think it's unfortunate that that's what's getting the attention here. I don't disagree with those critiques, but I'll also say that if we are more interested in critiquing Uma Thurman and or Maureen Dowd as a culture, we're, we're missing it. It wasn't like this was the first revelation that was going to sink someone's career. So I do think she has room to reveal fewer details. I also think if you've read anything where Uma Thurman has been quoted over her career, this is kind of the way she talks. She She's a quirky, artistic kind of figure. I don't know. I think it would be healthy for us to back off of the let's all be detectives and piece together the cases about what's happened here and more listen to an actress a very accomplished actress who says this director pressured me to do this thing that put my life at risk. And that's how these things work. And that's the conversation that we need to be having. Well, I mean, the only thing is because I'm such a a student of Anne Allen Peterson, I don't think she's saying we need to be detectives. I think she's saying the way we talk, this is totally reflective of the mistakes and the way that women are undervalued and disempowered in a million ways that lead to situations in which they're put in a dangerous car and said, film this or else. And they have video of, of her driving the car and it's really scary. But like, you know, I don't really think this is a the sort of like, let's piece apart, you know, Al Franken's or Aziz Ansari's movements piece by piece. I think she's just saying, as she sort of consistently always says, like the way we treat these things in our culture says something about us and the way this piece was written and the way it was put in the opinion section and the way all this color was added says something about us. What does that say? Um, because everything, every woman's story in the Me Too moment is a, is a part of a bigger narrative. And, you know, I think that asking ourselves how we're talking about it and not just what happened is really important. 
Well, part of it is because we put everything in the lens of narrative. And a lot of what really happens to women, especially women who aren't famous, doesn't make for a compelling narrative. It It's not an interesting read. It just is horrible, right? And it's just devastating to them. And it's just something that if another person read it, they might have a different take on. Well, and I I'm... think that's maybe the lesson of all of this, to step back and realize some of these stories aren't – they're not going to read like – Things that belong in front of a grand jury. And they're also not going to read like books that you would purchase to read for pleasure because they're, they're not cohesive. But, and, and look, that, that's true about the way men behave too. I mean, I think that's what we kept circling around to with Aziz Ansari. It's not clearly a villain and clearly a hero in, in lots of these tales. And that's why having them be tales. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that we need the media to keep this conversation alive because the media is always going to have some dramatization of what's happening and some framing that is um, not always accurate and sometimes uncomfortable. Well, I don't think it's necessarily like the story of what happened to her. I think she just means like the cultural narrative. And she actually links to an excerpt from an article on Jezebel calling out Babe for the way they reported the story, the way they wrote the story, um, and saying like, you need to be more careful. You need to be more careful with these stories and in this moment. And I don't think there is an ounce of carefulness in this New York Times piece. And I don't think it has to be, you know, exciting. I like, I don't think Lupita Nyong's piece was you know, some grand jury testimony or crime drama, it, I think she did a beautiful job of piecing apart like, this is complicated. It's not easy. I can't explain why I did some of the things I did. I can't explain them to myself. I had problem in that moment. Like, and I just, you know, I don't know. And I would not, and I don't think anybody's saying like, Uma Thurman should have done it firsthand. She did the wrong thing. But I just think that it is important to say there needs to be more carefulness in the way that we tell sexual assault stories, be they from a celebrity or anywhere else. And I don't think there's, like I said, I don't think there's any, there's an ounce of carefulness in the way that Maureen Dowd wrote this piece or the way the New York Times published it. And I think that is incredibly unfortunate because clearly Uma Thurman was traumatized and um, injured and hurt and it's definitely an important piece of this story. And I, that's not to say that we should discard it, but um, we have to be more careful. So I, I again, I want to say I'm not um, extolling the virtue of the journalism or the opinion commentary that was provided here. What I think is really important is to have the conversation about what Tarantino did in connection with that driving scene as part of the continued conversation about gender dynamics. All right. You ready to compliment the other side? Okay. We always take a second to compliment the other side before moving into our main topic. And I wanted to compliment Chris Coons today, who is sponsoring uh, bipartisan immigration legislation that you referred to earlier, Sarah. Chris Coons and John McCain have come together to provide a companion to Will Hurd's bill that you mentioned last week. This would provide a path to citizenship for dreamers. It would provide border security funding and studies. It would not provide a wall. And I just want to offer a little side note about media coverage here. There is a lot in the legislation from Coons and McCain and Heard 
about border security. And I think that the media, by focusing on the no wall aspect of this, is really harming the chances that bipartisan legislation can be Mm -hmm. passed and signed because the president is so fixated on the wall. If we really all want a good solution to immigration, it looks like we there is a possibility of that happening if we could stop talking about campaign promises and slogans and just get to the work of doing it. And I even saw Chris Coons interviewed this morning saying, probably we're going to have to add more money for border security to get this across the finish line. So there's openness to doing that from Democrats too. take it, take that opportunity instead of fixating on two words that are pretty meaningless if you're actually talking about trying to protect the border, but not to embed negativity within a compliment. (laughs) Thank you, Senator Coons, for working on this, for being honest about it, for trying to get something done for the uh, DACA recipients. So I've got a good one today. I am complimenting Trey Gowdy because I'm really enjoying about to be retired, says the tr- speaks the truth, says what he wants to say, Trey Gowdy. He went on all the Sunday shows and said the memo should have no impact on the Russia, mo- Russia probe, that it doesn't um, – that the surveillance warrant would have been authorized without it and that he um, believes that it doesn't even speak to obstruction of justice. I'm just here for it. I'm here for like newly retired. I'm going to say what's the right thing to say, Trey Gowdy. Also, I would like to say that it's not that I didn't know who Trey Gowdy was. But I did not understand that his hair was such a thing. And now I enjoy the image searches for Trey Gowdy's hair so much. Like, y'all, do yourself a favor. Search Trey Gowdy's hair. And it's many, many, many iterations. It's, it's, it's well worth your time. Well, from Trey Gowdy's hair to the Nunez memo, we're going to move in the next section to looking at where the Mueller investigation stands, how this memo came about, and exactly what it says. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsy Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is 
bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So today we are going to dive in to the memo, but first we want to do some primer material, getting everybody up to date on what FISA means, where we are in the investigation, and sort of the bigger perspective on this. I was listening to, or I'm sorry, I was reading a book that I'm going to give away on the Pantsy Politics social media channels when I'm done with it. It's Elaine de Bottoms, The News, A User Manual. And one of his very first critiques of the way we deal with news is that um, it's always such a close-up perspective that we never zoom out. Like what the news should be doing is helping us gain perspective on why something that's happening is important. And so that's what we're trying to do right now. We're trying to zoom out and give everybody a little bit of wider perspective on the issue. Last March, we talked quite a bit about FISA and specifically about Section 702. This was in connection with the Comey and Rogers hearing. When I went back through our notes, I couldn't believe that it's been that long. It felt like just a few months ago, but it was last March. So we're going to do a little bit of review of FISA first, then we'll talk about where the Mueller investigation is, and then we'll talk about the Nunes memo. So just bear with us. Uh, FISA is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that was enacted in 1978. And what's interesting is that a lot of what's happening right now, the statute itself that's at issue and the actions of the House Select Committee on Intelligence um, both date back to the Watergate era where we were having this big national conversation about surveillance of American citizens and about the actions of our intelligence agencies. So FISA was enacted after that by Congress in response to the urging of the Supreme Court. Presidents up until the 1970s had claimed broad powers 
related to their national security responsibilities to spy on Americans. And FISA is Congress's attempt to rein that in. So under FISA, non-criminal electronic surveillance can only occur for the purpose of collecting foreign intelligence and counterintelligence. FISA says that foreign powers and agents of foreign powers can be targeted for electronic surveillance. But it explicitly says non-U.S. persons. And U.S. persons are defined as citizens, legal permanent residents, U.S. corporations, unincorporated associates with a substantial number of members who are citizens or lawful permanent residents. So that's a pretty broad definition. It said that the government needs probable cause to conduct surveillance, and it sets a standard for that probable cause. And it established foreign intelligence surveillance courts at the district and appellate levels to review applications for warrants under the act. So those foreign intelligence surveillance courts, that is the FISC acronym that you're probably seeing in reporting about the Nunes memo. On those foreign intelligence surveillance courts sit 11 federal district judges that are appointed by the chief justice of the Supreme Court. The judges serve a maximum of seven years in staggered terms. Three judges have to live within 20 miles of Washington, D.C., and at least seven judicial circuits must be represented. The court of review is three judges appointed by the chief justice. FISA also said that the government can only conduct electronic surveillance in the United States for the purpose of collecting foreign intelligence or foreign counterintelligence pursuant to a warrant issued by the foreign intelligence surveillance courts or in an emergency with approval from the attorney general, provided that a warrant is sought within 24 hours. Since the initial passage of FISA, it has been expanded and refined a number of times. A major problem is that law enforcement agencies collecting information under FISA often collect evidence of domestic crimes. And those domestic crimes are not why the surveillance is being done. The surveillance is all about foreign issues. When evidence of domestic crimes are is collected under FISA, the FBI is obligated by statute and executive order to pass that evidence to the appropriate law enforcement agency. There have been lots of challenges to evidence collected under FISA in criminal cases under the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, and that has led to kind of a judicial test about whether the primary purpose of intelligence collection has been for foreign intelligence or counterintelligence instead of law enforcement in a wall between the intelligence community and other law enforcement agencies. All of that was kind of reframed. And the ability to collect this intelligence was substantially expanded by the Patriot Act, which you probably remember follows the attacks on the United States on September 11th, 2001. So the Patriot Act was passed in October. Very quick passage of this act in response to terrorism. Patriot Act is, stands for providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. The purpose was to enhance the government's ability to share intelligence, strengthen criminal laws against terrorism, remove obstacles to investigating terrorism, which sounded good at the time and has become very problematic afterward, and update the law to reflect new technology. So now, instead of saying that foreign intelligence has to be the only purpose of a FISA warrant, you have to certify that the collection of foreign intelligence is a significant purpose, but it can be one of other purposes. And there has been discussion about the wall separating law enforcement and the foreign intelligence collection. The Department of Justice, a, a 
a department within the Department of Justice, ask the, the FISA court to remove the wall separating law enforcement and the intelligence community. The court declined and wrote its own standards that tried to find a balance between effectuating the Patriot Act and limiting, and, and limiting the intrusive methods of surveillance available under FISA. And then on appeal, the Court of Review said that the wall did not survive the Patriot Act. So now here's where we are with the disclosure and use of information gleaned under FISA. It has to be collected for a lawful purpose. It has to be accompanied by an admonishment that FISA-derived information can only be used in a criminal proceeding with the advanced authorization of the attorney general. The government has to give notice to the criminal defendant and the court if it's going to use FISA-derived information in a criminal proceeding. And there are no exceptions to the attorney general's advance approval. Also, the government never produces a copy of the application to obtain the FISA warrant, and that's very relevant to the Nunes memo. Okay, Sarah, do you want to talk to us about where the Robert Mueller investigation stands right now? Sure. So Robert Mueller was appointed, as we all remember, um, after Rod Rosenstein, who was acting as attorney general because Jeff Sessions had recused himself. Um, so they appointed Robert Mueller because we all decided that Jeff Sessions wouldn't be a really great pick to lead the investigation considering I think it did it happen did that happen when he said we found out he'd lied about a portion of it right yes that was he recused himself because he volunteered testimony during a a hearing about himself as a surrogate not having contact with the Russians and it was a strange response because it wasn't directly responsive to the question he was asked and it also kind of called new issues into question so at that point Sessions recused himself Trump is furious that Sessions did so Rod Rosenstein becomes the acting attorney general with respect to the investigation and he appoints Mueller so Robert Mueller is authorized to investigate any links and or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the campaign of President Donald Trump and any matters that arose or may arise directly from the investigation, which, P.S., that's a pretty broad one, and any other matters within the scope of 28 CFR 600.4a, which is the jurisdiction of a special counsel shall also include the authority to investigate and prosecute federal crimes committed in the course of and with intent to interfere with the special counsel's investigation, such as perjury, here's the zinger, obstruction of justice, Destruction of evidence and intimidation of witnesses and to conduct appeals arising out of the matter being investigated and or prosecuted. If necessary and appropriate, the special counsel is authorized to prosecute federal crimes arising from the investigation of these matters. And so that's where we get into the obstruction of justice um, claims that you often hear about Donald Trump with the firing of James Comey. So what we know that Mueller has done so far, he had a plea agreement. He has a plea agreement with George Papadopoulos, which is about um, lying, particularly about his timing of involvement with the Trump campaign and the meetings he was having with Russia and um, officials. We have an indictment of Paul Manafort and Richard Gates, which is more about tons of money that they were getting from their Ukrainian clients without proper disclosure and using shell entities to launder the money. Generally a bad idea and avoiding paying taxes on it. There's been some um, talk recently because of uh, changes with Richard Gates' attorney that he is now cooperating in the Mueller investigation, but that's all that's been so far is chatter. Uh, there's a plea agreement with Michael Flynn, who also lied to the FBI about his meeting with a Russian ambassador. Um, he had asked the Russian ambassador not to escalate in response to sanctions from the Obama administration and also discussions with re- Russians regarding votes on the U.N. Security Council on Israeli settlements. And he made false estimates in filings with the Department of Justice about his consulting work with Turkey. All bad ideas. Don't lie to the federal government. 
So there have been interviews, including with Sessions, um, Jared Kushner, Reince Priebus, um, Spicer, Stephen Miller, Hope Hicks, Stephen Bannon, and George Nader, which is a, a Bannon associate. So there's been lots of investigations with high-ranking White House officials. Um, the president recently said that he's happy to sit down with Mueller. Who knows if that will happen? And that brings us to the Nunes memo. I think it, one more important thing to say about the Mueller investigation is that Mueller himself has not been talking to media. Mm-mm. And so in the sort of right wing echo chambers, there's a lot of discussion about Mueller, like showboating or something. And I don't see any support for that. What I see is Mueller quietly doing his work. There have been some leaks. Not very a lot, little. Really, yeah, fix and say. Because- some of that stuff was huge and they kept it really quiet until it hit. Papadopoulos came out of nowhere. No one even knew his name until he had been indicted and entered this plea agreement. So I think whatever you think about this investigation, the points of what Sarah just recapped are, one, that the special counsel's authority by statute and by directive from the attorney general's office is very, very broad. And two, that he is methodically and quietly going about his business to discharge his responsibilities. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so FISA was passed in 1978. In 1977, so still in the wake of Watergate, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence was created. There were two committees in the late 70s investigating the CIA and other intelligence agencies and how they responded to Watergate. Those committees, the Church and Pike committees, and this is like a rabbit hole that I can just go way, way down. So I'm going to try to limit myself today. They found evidence of spying on American citizens, illegal wiretapping and cover ups. And so both the Senate and the House established committees to prevent further abuses of power. Okay, so the HPSCI, if you're seeing that in articles about Nunes, is the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. I'm just going to call that the Intelligence Committee. There are 22 members on this committee, and that has to include at least one member from Appropriations, Armed Services, Judiciary, and Foreign Affairs. That's really important because the jurisdiction of this committee often overlaps and sometimes competes with the jurisdiction of other House committees, especially the Judiciary Committee. The House Intelligence Committee's jurisdiction is actually broader than the Senate Intelligence Committee's jurisdiction. So the Senate only has jurisdiction over national intelligence programs. The House Intelligence Committee has jurisdiction over both national intelligence and military intelligence programs. What is that? I don't know. But if you go to the website, it's a staggering number of agencies and branches of the military over which this committee can take a look at things. Hmm. So Nunez is the chair. He's a Republican from California. He's the chair of the Special Intelligence Committee for the House, the Standing Intelligence Committee. In April, he stepped aside, and there is debate about whether that actually means recusal, from chairing the committee in relation to the probe about Russian interference in our election because the House Ethics Committee announced that it was investigating him for unauthorized disclosure of classified information. You might recall some bizarre press conferences taking place near the White House grounds. And the assertion was that Nunes was talking about classified information that he had somehow reviewed in or near the White House to media, to the president. It was all very bizarre. So that House ethics investigation is closed. And Nunes says that he was completely cleared by the investigation. 
But the reporting that I've seen says that the Ethics Committee really couldn't do anything on that investigation because they never got the classified information that was at the heart Mm. of the inquiry. So I don't know what to think about that. Okay, so staff working for the Intelligence Committee wrote a memo to the majority members of that committee only on January 18th. It is a four-page document. I have read it. I would encourage everyone to read it. It's only four pages. But I will say, just as a general matter, I have written hundreds of memos and read hundreds more. Anything that's four pages is probably not a complete view of a complicated subject. (laughs) And I think that is true about this memo. That said, I don't think, I think there are things about this memo that should prompt some conversation. I don't think they are the things that Nunez envisioned when he started working with right-wing media outlets on hashtag release the memo. So there was this kind of public relations campaign to bring this memo to public light. The president was vocally supportive of doing that. After review by the intelligence agencies and the Department of Justice and approval of the president, the memo has been released. The Democrats on this committee have their own memo that is being voted on as we are recording to provide their perspective on what happened. I do not know the length of that memo. It's being referred to as the Schiff memo. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know who wrote the Nunes memo, except that Trey Gowdy apparently was part of that effort. The The memo itself just says HPSCI staff. It doesn't include individual names, which I also find kind of problematic. Um, I don't know if that's a standard or not, but if it is a standard, I think that would be a good one to change. Okay, so let me take you through what actually the memo, what the memo actually says. The FBI and the Department of Justice back in October of 2016 wrote an application under FISA to the FISA court seeking a warrant to surveil Carter Page. Carter Page, who loves to sit down and talk to people for long interviews on MSNBC, strangely dodges questions, but insinuates that he's very important. Carter, that Carter page. (laughs) Okay. So this memo says that the application for that FISA warrant, which was subsequently renewed three times by the FISA court, omitted critical facts that would have allowed the FISA court to more accurately render a decision on whether surveillance of Carter Page, which is an extraordinary thing under all of our laws, to be appropriate. So they're not saying that he was surveilled without a warrant, which would be a huge, that would be the kind of scandal that it's Mm -hmm. being hyped as, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not saying that the warrant was improperly obtained. The process was followed here. You're supposed to make application to this court. The court had the application. The court issued the warrant. The probable cause standard was found to be met and the surveillance was conducted. So everything was done according to the law. What they're saying is that the Department of Justice and the FBI were derelict in their duties to provide a proper, complete, thorough application to this court. And what they say are the problems with the application is that 
the the steel dossier, which everyone probably remembers because it's so salacious and was made such a big deal of in the media, they say the steel dossier was an essential part of getting the probable cause standard met and obtaining this warrant, and that the Department of Justice did not disclose who funded the Steele dossier. And the memo writes about that as as the DNC and the Clinton campaign and Fusion GPS. It conveniently omits that Republicans at one point also helped fund the Steele dossier. It says also that to substantiate the Steele dossier, the FISA application relies on a Yahoo News article by My- Michael Isakoff about Carter Page's July 2016 trip to Moscow. And the memo says, well, that doesn't substantiate the Steele dossier because Steele himself provided that information to Yahoo. So it is not independent corroboration Mm. of the memo. I think a lot of things about this section are kind of bizarre, but we can talk about that in a second. Um, And then it kind of goes into some editorial comment on Steele as an FBI source. It says that he was talking to the media, making unauthorized disclosures to the media um, in September, but it wasn't until October that the FBI terminated him as a source for having those conversations. The FBI did terminate him as a source for having those conversations, but the memo says it probably should have happened earlier. It also says generally because Steele was making unauthorized disclosures to media, he was an unreliable source, that he was terribly biased against the president, that he had shared with Bruce Orr, who was an associate deputy attorney general, that he was desperate to ensure Trump did not get elected. And desperate is in the memo. That is a quote. It also says that at the time, Bruce Orr's wife worked at Fusion GPS and helped with opposition research on President Trump. And that all of this backstory should have been included in the FISA application for the warrant. It says that the Steele dossier has only been minimally corroborated and then kind of takes a jab at Comey for briefing the president on the dossier at all. It also cites testimony from Andrew McCabe in December that the Steele dossier was the reason that the surveillance warrant was sought in the first place. And then it ends in a way that I find really confusing by talking about how the FISA application mentioned George Papadopoulos without presenting any evidence of a conspiracy between Page and Papadopoulos, and that that triggered opening an investigation from Pete uh, Strozik, who is one of the infamous text messengers about, we hate Donald Trump, we don't want him to be the president. So he and his mistress in the FBI. And I feel like that Papadopoulos paragraph is just dropped in only to talk about these agents and their text messages. Mm. I don't understand it to mean that Papadopoulos was actually surveilled by the FBI. I could be wrong about that, but I, I read that paragraph several times and I didn't understand it. So that's what the memo says. Your thoughts, Sarah. So I have some um, close-in perspective thoughts and some way-out perspective thoughts. My first thing that really bothers me about um, this, well, I don't know if bothers. There's a little shouting for it. I think that they had a good news cycle post-State of the Union, and they ruined it with this release the memo thing because they hyped it 
They decided it was a good story. They didn't think through any of the long, even short-term or long-term consequences of doing this whole hashtag release the memo thing. The short-term consequences, which is they stole the positive news bin from the State of the Union. Um, there was some really great reporting about how they were they went on the Republican Party retreat and they couldn't get any of their positive agenda out because all anybody wanted to talk about was release the memo. And I just want to be like, what do you think was going to happen, boys? Like, of course, that's what you're telling everyone. Um, because here's a big pers- big picture perspective we can't miss. This is the president and the president's party attacking the Department of Justice and the FBI. That's what this memo is. They're saying in a very public way, um, you're terrible at your job. You're corrupt. Everything's bad over there. Nothing you do can be trusted. Uh, that's problematic to say the least. And what really bothers me about the gymnastics of the reasoning with all this, and look, some of the Democrats are doing this to a certain extent too, which is uh, Politico had this great thing where they were like, you can't claim the memo is a nothing burger and that um, you you must be allowed to reduce your, release your own memo because you have important information. Like either it's important and you need an answer or it's a nothing burger. I think it's a nothing burger. But What bothers me and kind of makes me laugh as somebody who used to do research, opposition research in a presidential campaign, is the mental gymnastics of nothing is dependable because they were paying for this as opposition research, which just taints everything. I mean, just the idea that you would have to go, you would get opposition research and pay a spy to get opposition research. Well, that's just outrageous. And that just taints everything. And at the same breath being like, listen, we were just getting opposition research from the Russians. It's no big deal. Everybody does it. Everybody uses whatever sources they can to get opposition research. We were just getting it from the Russians. Really exhausts me. Really exhausts me. So the crux of all of this is, is as you were saying, Sarah, and I just want to say this more plainly for people who are not reading lots of articles about it. There's a concept in the law called the fruit of the poisonous tree. And the idea is that if you, in a criminal investigation, obtain something illegally, everything that you learned after that has to be excluded from the record in front of the court because it came from something that was done wrong. And I think that is a really problematic thing for people that don't go to law school to understand because it sounds in a way kind of crazy because you just want to say, well, if you found the truth and you found proof that this person killed this person or that whatever you're looking for, you found the proof. What does it matter? Well, the matter is it's it's our only tool to and not a great one beyond to be honest, to keep um, law enforcement and investigators within the law, because if there's no risk, if there's no downside of obtaining information illegally, then what's to stop you? But the risk is that if you do it, you lose everything that comes after that. And that's because our justice system overall says it is a big deal to deprive someone of life, liberty, or property. And if we're going to do that, we're going to do it right. And we're going to follow these rules to the best of our ability to make sure that we're protecting individuals who've been accused of crime. And so this memo kind of sort of makes the assertion That the FISA application was so incomplete that the warrant should never have been issued and that anything that came after, this is certainly what Sean Hannity is saying, because Sean Hannity has said, 
look, everything, the Mueller investigation has to go. The indictment against Paul Manafort needs to be dismissed. It's all fruit of the poisonous tree. I don't know and, that he's used those words, but that's that's what he is arguing. And I would love to blow off Shane Hannity as much as the next person, but he is an advisor to the president. And there are no ifs, ands or buts about that. They and, and his audience is enormous. I mean, he he has a very big forum. And so I don't want to talk about him ever either. But I think especially as our country is having a really tumultuous moment in terms of who we trust and what we're talking about, it's important to just say, here's where everybody is on this. My perspective is that FISA itself was expanded to a point that needs to be revisited in the, with the Patriot Act. And that that is the national discussion we need to have. Because you can see here how law enforcement was responding to information hitting them and the press in real time in the midst of a presidential campaign that had a voting date, right? And between the, you know, October 16th, that's right before we're all about to go vote. So if you had a campaign that was actively conspiring with a foreign power, we want our invest, I think we want our intelligence agencies to act quickly to find out if that's true or not. In the process of doing that, they probably are chasing all kinds of leads that turn out to go nowhere. And we probably want them to be doing that. Do we want them to be doing to that to the point that it leads to listening to the conversations of an American citizen? I don't think so. But that's a conversation that needs to happen, in my opinion, in a non – that's an apolitical conversation. That shouldn't be Democrats versus Republicans. That should be how are we doing in balancing our national security with our civil liberties, something that everyone has an interest in. And I guess the other thing I want to say to be fair about all of this, I think everyone is connecting dots that we don't know if they connect yet or not. Well, because the truth is Carter Page could have been doing all kinds of illegal activity and and activity that is dangerous from a foreign security, from a national security perspective with Russia in and of itself, that could have been happening without it meaning that Donald Trump has been treasonous. Like, that's not a direct line. It's also not a direct line to say that the FBI had individuals within it who did not want Donald Trump to be the president. Therefore, they were incapable of drafting a responsible FISA application. Therefore, the warrant is no good. We're just, we're not there yet, right? We're all making these inferences because we're starting with conclusions in mind. And I don't think we have enough in front of us yet, especially in the public, to know what conclusions to draw. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin. I take a probiotic. And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. 
I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Well, and my biggest issue with that, first of all, if you don't like the application, if you feel like the application is lacking, you don't like the decision of the FISA court, fine. That doesn't mean something illegal happened. That doesn't That's necessarily right. fall under the fruit of the poisonous tree. The law needs to be broken. And I don't remember any part of those four requirements you laid out in a FISA application, including no one who disagrees with me paid or was involved in any information gathered for this application. Give me a freaking break. And secondly, you guys don't have a plan. I don't even care if it was political. If you use this moment to say, okay, we have this really problematic situation. We are furious about it. And we're going to channel that into changes to the FISA court that we think are problematic and legislative solutions. Fine. But that's not what you do. That's not what you ever do. You fan the flames. You tell people government is the problem and you don't have an end game except for hate it, burn it down, only put us in charge. That's how we got Donald Trump in the first place. That's how we got the Tea Party. Because with due respect, I'm an elected official and I don't like to have my motives doubted. But with re- with regards to the Republican leadership and the Republican 
Republican Party. I'm not talking about anybody who feels that we should have small government or has ever voted Republican or is a registered Republican. I'm talking about Republican Party leadership, specifically people like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. They use this stuff. They decide it gets them some short-term gain, and they seem to have no concern for the long-term consequences of fanning these conspiracy theories of people telling them that their government is corrupt and out to get them and not saying, okay, these are the structural problems. These are our legislative fixes because we can fix what's wrong with the government with the government sometimes, and that's not to say we're going to have a perfect institution, but you guys aren't even trying. You're just making people mad. You're just fanning these conspiracy theories. You're just saying you should you should be afraid because the people in the government are out to get you. Liberals are out to get you. And we're the only ones that can save you, except we don't really have a plan either. Just hate them. And it makes me so angry, not just because I disagree with it, but because I think it's dangerous. It would be a very different conversation if the same people who advocated for reauthorizing Section 702, which is one of the most controversial aspects of FISA, uh, weren't making these criticisms, right? Uh. If, 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 if the, if the Nunez contingency, I'm thinking of people like Jim Jordan were in discussions about reauthorizing section 702 saying we've gone too far or we've learned something since 9-11 and we realize that this went too far or that it's being abused today or whatever and we shouldn't reauthorize it. I think that would be a different conversation. This does look like naked partisanship. And it's not to say that we shouldn't have some concerns here, but if we had this slice of information about, I'm guessing, any criminal investigation at the state or federal level in the United States today, looking at just this much information from it, we would have concerns. Because criminal investigations are really messy, and they happen at a very fast pace often. And you could pull out somebody following a lead from a source who turned out not to be a credible source. You could pull out somebody writing an application for a warrant that doesn't tell the court everything the court might desire to know. Because when you write the application for the warrant, you're trying to get it because you're trying to follow. You're not trying to say, court, let me give you a completely neutral assessment of the facts so you can decide whether to let me take my next step or not. You're trying to persuade the court that you need this tool to get to the next piece of something and that all of that's really important. There's always going to be a balance of the interest in these things. So it it is kind of ludicrous, I think, to suggest that the DOJ should have said, we have this memo that raises, we have this dossier that raises real concerns, but here are all the problems with the dossier that we're aware of today, and there might be more problems that we're not aware of. And it could be that later, the guy who wrote this thing um, is going to prove to be less than credible. We don't know. So take that for what it's worth and then tell us if we can spy on an American citizen. Like, they're not going to do that. That's not the way any of this works. And that's why I just find the memo itself to to read more like a political document than like serious government oversight. I also think serious government oversight into the way warrants are sought is merited. But that's something that Democrats and Republicans ought to be doing together. That it's just embarrassing to me that we have a Republican version of this memo and a Democratic version of this mm-hmm. memo. If there's really a problem, 
That is a problem that should concern everybody. Well, and also just the sort of meta ridiculousness of all this is, well, I'm assuming the people wrote this memo, sent some text messages about how the last thing they want in the world is Hillary Clinton to be president. Does that mean everything in this memo is suspect? Where does this end? Right. And and can we all agree that that our law enforcement personnel and our intelligence community personnel are humans and they are going to have an opinion? And that's acceptable. I mean, look, we've all worked. I would imagine that most of us have had the experience of doing work for someone that we truly despise and probably someone that we despise to the point that we have shared our distaste for those people with others in electronic communications. Doesn't mean we do bad work for them. It doesn't mean that suddenly, because I don't like my boss, I start sabotaging everything I touch. And if I don't do that in my normal job that has nothing to do with safeguarding our democracy, at some point we've got to trust people to be able to compartmentalize. We ask law enforcement to compartmentalize about almost everything that they endure. Can you imagine the psychological toll it would take on you if you weren't sure if a presidential candidate, if somebody who was about to be elected president was conspiring with a foreign power, that's a lot. But we ask people to do these things. And so I think we got to give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt. Are there leaks? Yes. Are Is information manipulated? Sure. None of these agencies are above scrutiny or reproach or oversight. But when the body responsible for that oversight is also selectively leaking information to the American public, providing excerpts from this memo to conservative media outlets in advance of the memo's full release. I mean, there's a problem with the oversight here. At what point are we going to say, we don't have a body that can exercise completely nonpartisan, completely neutral oversight over everything that's happening? And we're going to have to just go with that. I mean, I guess we could become a colony again and just send everything to Britain and they can decide. They could be our neutral body of everything, since clearly we're just going to fight among ourselves all the time. I'm just that's about where it is. I'm just spitballing here because what else are we going to do if we can't agree with each other? Then maybe we just need to, you know, get somebody, put somebody else in charge. Well, I think the question now is what what is the next step? This memo doesn't recommend any action items. What's the purpose of a memo that doesn't recommend any action items? To undermine. And and that's right. And so so you undermine, and then what? Is it, and then the president fires Rod Rosenstein, and you say, well, I guess I understand that because they did a terrible job writing this application. And don't think for a second, if you are Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell or anybody who is supposed to be exercising leadership in this party, like, this will all haunt. All of these precedents that are being set are going to come back around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and it's just depressing. I really wish that the Democrats had been like, this is a nothing burger. You don't even need our memo. Moving on. This is so lame. We're not even going to respond to it. I kind of wish they'd done that. It's a hard call, though, because I I was listening to somebody talk about this. I think it was John Brennan who said, you know, the president likes to smear the intelligence agencies and then try to walk it back by saying the rank and file are awesome. It's just the leaders that are the problem. Mm -hmm. But if you are the spouse or the family members of a rank and file FBI investigator, CIA personnel, this feels awful. And when you know the kind of sacrifices that your family is making to protect the country, this is awful. Mm. 
And so I can see if I were, if I had seen the FISA application, and that's really the question to me, who has reviewed the FISA application itself? Oh, I'm sure our president sat down with it closely, Beth. Don't worry. If I've seen that and I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican who doesn't agree with the characterization or who agrees with the characterization but says, I mean, what's so funny about this? It's a four-page memo slamming the application for omitting material information. Okay, so if I read this memo and say, yeah, but you have omitted material information in presenting what this application looked like. Here's the rest of it. I think on behalf of the people who do this work, even if I thought that this was a nothing burger, I might feel compelled to get the rest of that information out to say, no, these people are doing their jobs. Yeah. Look at look at how they did their jobs. This is the way it's supposed to work. I mean, there's a question of confidence here because you have a, a substantial number of Americans hearing the headlines about this who think that their law enforcement now is politicized to the point of trying to not elect their candidate. What? How do, how do you say nothing about that if the underlying intelligence suggests that this memo isn't credible? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, politically, I get where you're coming from, but man, there are like really big questions here beyond the politics of what's happening in this moment. Well, that's where I'm at with the Mueller investigation Generally, where I'm at, the the sort of bigger question here, not just with the treatment of the Department of Justice, but where this all started with the investigation, I keep thinking about that uh, story you always hear when people try to explain like the different world religions that everybody's in the dark and they're feeling the elephant and some people is just some people are describing a trunk and some people are describing a leg, but they're all really describing the element. You know what the story I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what's happening with the Mueller investigation. Like we're all in the dark. We all have super tiny little snippets of information. We do not see the whole elephant. We're all trying to comment on the whole elephant. And I wish we would just stop both sides. I wish we would stop trying to create narratives from the tiny pieces of information we have, you know, and use it in partisan manner and just just let the man do his job. Just let the man do his job and wait and see what he tells us. Well, and recognize that it might not be an elephant. Mm-hmm. It might be an elephant, a monkey, and a giraffe. I mean, if you look at what his charge is, it is to investigate crimes that are related to the investigation of Russia's interference in the election. The crimes that he has charged so far don't really hang together, right? Mm-hmm. You've got Flynn with contacts in Turkey. Um, and and he was charged related to lying about that. You've got Manafort and Gates making all this money off Ukraine, which could have nothing to do with Flynn and Turkey. You've got Papadopoulos lying about contacts with Russia. Like, that all might roll up to some elephant, but it might not. These might just be a series of unrelated crimes because this is an unbelievably inexperienced and incompetent organization that all these people are working with. So true. And that the president is picking from a very limited pool of people to surround him because folks with lots of experience in this arena spent the election trying not to get him elected. Hmm. Right. I keep running back in my mind to the fact that so many experienced foreign policy advisors would not go work for this administration. Yeah. Signed a letter saying this is dangerous. We cannot have him in this office because he doesn't understand it. 
So you're going to attract like the miscreants to this organization. Yep. Yep. And I want to be clear. I don't know what Donald Trump himself knew or didn't know or did or didn't do. And I do feel in the dark about that. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and and leave it at it could just be that the people around him were so inexperienced and some had so few um, ethics about them that he is surrounded in a storm that he didn't create. Possibly. (laughs) And it could also be that he is the mastermind of some criminal conspiracy or anything in between. And that's where I totally agree with your point. We're in the dark. We don't know. We just need to wait and see. We can't wait and see when Congress, which should be focused in a laser-like way on funding our government, is like running around to see who can hit the Sunday shows to try to undermine the credibility of the people doing the work to figure out what happened in the first place. And the other thing Congress ought to be doing, there are two sides of this, right? There's... There's the the question of whether American citizens have participated in crimes, and that's what Robert Mueller is investigating. But we also need Congress to look at the fact that Russia did some things in this election. And if you are somebody who voted for Trump, that doesn't mean anything other than Russia cares about United States elections and is trying to influence them and will continue to do that no matter who is on the ballot. And we need Congress to care about that as well, instead of just trying to pick apart the people investigating Americans who might have done crimes. Well, I think where I'm at generally with release the memo and my perspective on this, just to wrap up and move on to what we're thinking about outside of politics is I feel pretty confident that in 50 years, no one's going to remember release the memo. Like this will be such a blip because no matter what comes out of the Mueller investigation, I also feel pretty confident saying that people on both sides are going to end up looking silly in the way they reacted to this before we knew anything. So I'm just trying to be not be that person. I just don't want to be the silly person that in 50 years is like, oh, man, remember how we reacted to this? And it was either a nothing burger. It was much bigger than we could have ever understood. But no matter what, I just think that this is such a blip and there's already been um, – sort of the reaction is so disproportionate to what was inside the memo and sort of the way in which they treated this whole thing. I'm just, I'm ready to move on. Well, I hope that we gave you some information that helps you come up with your own. Here's where I'm at on this. Um, and we will talk next about what we're thinking about outside of politics. Beth, did you watch the Super Bowl last night? I watched the first half of the Super Bowl. I watched the first half. I watched the halftime show. Then I went back to my room to watch The Marvelous Miss Maisel, which is so good. Everybody should watch it. And then my husband came in and said, uh, the Patriots are about to lose. Do you want to come watch Tom Brady be sad? And I said, yes, I do. And I paused The Marvelous Miss Maisel. I just didn't. I literally just started yelling, yay, not the Patriots. I don't know why I have such animosity towards that team. Probably because they cheat. They have cheated in the past. Um... And also, who wants to root for somebody who just wins over and over and over and over again? It's boring. So um, I'm just, I was here for it. I was so excited for the Eagles. Yay. Um, That part was exciting. I thought the halftime show was predictably fun, but not exciting. 
I was putting my kids in bed during the halftime show, and then I just decided I was done with it for the night and read my book until I fell asleep. I loved Pink. I want Pink to sing the national anthem everywhere. And she had the flu. I know. She's amazing. She's so talented. I loved the American Sign Language interpreter. I thought she did a beautiful job. I loved the America the Beautiful rendition. I I always enjoy the kind of uplifting Super Bowl commercials around the Super Bowl. Mm. So those were the things that I had a good time with. And also, Chad brought me chicken wings, and they made me happy as well. My husband made ribs. I thought that the Budweiser one was a little too self-congratulatory with the cans of water. Um, it, it made me feel like you made the cans of water just so you can make the Super Bowl con- the Super Bowl ad. I mean, there's always that line. I think Dodge crossed that line with the Martin Luther King commercial. Yeah. Who gave him there's permission to use that, yo? Don't do that. But here's the thing. You know what Justin Timberlake could have learned from all those ads? It is an intensely political moment. And, like, if you are not going to do something political, you are going to get in trouble for it, friend. Like, just just know that. If you're a celebrity, like, that's not you. That's fine. But, like, no, the people are going to be pissed. If you just come out there um, – and do your shtick and don't make any sort of bigger comment on our intense political moment. The funniest thing I read. And look, I love Justin Timberlake. Um, he, like I said, predictably fun. All those songs. I love them. I love them all. I love all the Justin Timberlake songs. I like to watch Justin Timberlake dance. I've seen him in concert. He's fantastic. But like, um, the funniest thing I saw that was about his outfit. Somebody said it looks like a Bitcoin millionaire um, bought their way into a Westworld episode or something like that. I just thought that was so perfect. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was interesting. I did not enjoy the Prince send up because Prince is a person who was intensely controlling of his own image. Something tells me he wouldn't have been down for that, um, even if it was in Minneapolis. So uh, I thought that was a poor choice. But otherwise, predictably fun. But, Justin, listen, babe, and anybody else out there, if you're not going to make a political statement – be prepared to be taken down by the Twitterverse. You're going to be taken down no matter what, though, because if you do make a political statement, mm-hmm. it's a problem. If you don't make it, I mean, my Facebook feed looked like about 50-50. It was a really fun show versus it was super boring. You just can't please the masses. And that's the Super Bowl is so much about the masses. I'm I'm kind of enjoying the commentary about where's the NFL go from here? Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting question. At the beginning of the game, when they did the coin toss and they had the veterans on the field for that, I said to my husband, here's an unpopular comment. I wish that the veterans would say, gentlemen, what I fought for, worth injury. What you're doing, not, not worth, worth injury. injury. Let's be careful. Let's have a good time. Let's be careful. Yeah. And Chad was like, oh, my God, Beth, you're ridiculous. But, I mean, I think that there is Super Bowl putting, you know, Super Bowl notwithstanding, there's a discussion here in America about whether we want to keep doing this game. And I am in the camp of, I think we don't want to keep doing it. I don't want to keep doing it. Football's stupid. Sorry. I mean, uh, Justin Timberlake even, super careful Justin Timberlake even said like, no, I'm not going to let my kid play football. Like I just, we know. Now it doesn't do it to everyone, but are we really asking, you know, do you want your child to play the genetic lottery that maybe their concussion is the one that gives them permanent brain damage? Like I just, y'all, let's move on. Let's move on to something else. In so many ways, the NFL is the perfect symbol of everything we're struggling with, mm-hmm. the wealth involved, consumerism. the exploitation of people. Yes, the consumerism, the the injuries, the role that women have in the NFL, the way that the NFL is trying to bring women into the game as consumers. There's just 
there's just too much here, I think, that smacks of the problems that we're all pushing against right yeah, now. Yeah, and we want to, like, solve these problems in a comfortable way. Spoiler alert. There is no way to solve this problem in a comfortable way. It's going to be a little painful to get rid of football, but we need to because it harms people. It gives them permanent. Did you read the piece in the New York Times that the NFL wife wrote? So good. You know, the other thing about the NFL that I think is is hard is that it does it does enrich people who might not have had a shot in another way. You know, and so I understand that there is a there is an American story of being lifted out of poverty through professional sports. And it's hard. And I think the answer to that is, in part, we got to do better everywhere else, creating these opportunities for historically marginalized communities. But at what point do you go from enriching people to ruining their bodies and the longevity of their lives, because what they're doing is so harsh. I don't oh, well, know. I think I got an idea, everybody. Okay, so I hate football, but I love football movies and television shows, like, all day long. Friday Night Lights, best show ever. So what if we just had lots more football entertainment that's not an actual football game? Also, a much more pleasant way to watch football, because it doesn't take four hours and you just get to see the fun parts. So why don't we take all the football players and they can be football actors and we'll just have a lot more football like shows, but not games where you're repeatedly hurting your body. Like we'll just film the good parts. I'm sure the way they I'm not like I'm pretty confident nobody was getting a concussion when they were filming Friday Night Lights. However, they did that. Let's just do that instead. I think this is a good solution, everybody. Now. Sarah, who loves Anne Hill and Peterson, would respond to you by saying, there's no way we're going to watch lots more football and not want to play lots more football. No way. I watch football. I don't want to play football. I love Friday Night Lights. Never once did I watch that show and be like, man, I want to watch. I want to play a good game of football. <laughs> Heck no. Yeah. I don't think that the broader culture is going to share your perspective on that, though. I mean, I just think it's a good compromise, America. Think about it. That's all I'm saying. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Fancy Politics. We will be back here with you on Friday, on Wednesday, on The Nuanced Life. We're going to be talking about pressure and stress and money and teeth grinding and all the things. So we hope you'll join us there as well. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to Patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music. 